let's review. Uh, chapter one. Chapter one, we introduced the concept of Tzadik Rasha and Benini, three personalities, let's say, three types of people, but we don't really find out what they are. And we say in order to understand Tzadik Rasha, in order to understand everything you need to know, you need to know Tzadik Rasha Benini. But in order to understand Tzadik Rasha Benini, you gotta understand the concept of the two souls. And the first soul that we're gonna understand is the animal soul. Animal soul. Okay, fine. So we did that. And in, in the end of chapter one, we introduced the animal soul. Fine. Chapter two, we introduced Nafishola Kiss, the godly soul. Very good. Alright. Now we're gonna to continue to talk about the godly soul. We're gonna to continue to talk about the godly soul. We're gonna talk about the godly soul in more detail. In more detail. In more detail means anatomy. Jackie Mason has a line. He says, you know, every Jewish guy, he pretends to, at least in front of his wife, to know about cars. So they're driving, and the car breaks down, and he gets out, and he comes back there, and he says, I know what the problem is. I think it's something under the hood. <laughs> okay. So... When we talk about the soul, I think there's a, an occupational hazard, which is we start thinking about the soul very abstractly as this sort of amorphous blob that doesn't have any real characteristics to it. And obviously it doesn't have physical shape, it's not a physical entity, it's a spiritual entity, but it certainly does have uh, a composition. And we're gonna learn about the composition of the soul here in chapter three, or what I'm calling the anatomy. Another point is, and I think I mentioned to you in the first class, that the, f well, let, let, let me ask you, is Tanya chiefly an instructional book or an informational book? Instructional, right? And we likened it sort of to a recipe from a cookbook, not to an encyclopedia. Um, and yet, remember I said, even with a recipe, what's the first thing in the recipe? Ingredients. ingredients. Right, ingredients, you don't do anything, you just, it's information. So it's not like you're actually doing work, you just read, here's the stuff that you have in order to start. Tanya sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of starts that way, uh, which is that we're not, we're not really doing work yet. There's work hinted to, there's the foundations for the work, but right now we're sort of just learning the ingredients. Like, I have a godly soul, I have an animal soul, and then I'm getting even more specific than that. What is what is the composition of, of each soul? So this, what's going on now, is part of the informational stuff. I'm learning, we're not, and, and the, by the way, that's why sometimes people get a little restless. It's like, you know, you sense the fact that this is going to change your life. It's going to tell you to do things totally differently. But, okay, tell me something to do. Well, I can't tell you what to do just yet. We want to get instructional, but first we have to be a little bit more informational. You have to know what you're dealing with. We have to get everything laid out on the counter and see all the ingredients. Uh, or another way to look at it is, you know, you go to medical school. You don't learn how to treat people right away. The first thing in medical school is anatomy. You have to know the body parts before you start trying to figure out what's wrong with them and then figuring out how to make them better. So think of this, chapter three, as like anatomy, gross anatomy of the godly soul. And that what we're gonna learn now informationally is going to become extremely important instructionally 
later on in the book. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's start like this. First thing we learn about the anatomy of the godly soul is that it is, I'll use the actual technical technical term, nishtalshal. That's from the word shalshal. It's like a chain. It is nishtalshal from the ten spheroids. This is a pet peeve of mine, sort of pedantic of me, but when you talk about the ten, the ten emanations through which the infinite uh, finds context for a relationship with the finite, those are called ten spheroids, which is sort of an untranslatable term. Could you repeat it, sorry? When you talk about how the infinite finds context for a relationship with the finite, those are called the ten spheroids, which is sort of an untranslatable term. I don't know how to translate sphera properly. <coughs> but Hashem has ten spheroids, or he relates to us through his ten spheroids. When you find the exact same pattern repeated in the nefesh, in the soul, they're called koichais. They're called potentials or powers or capacities. Just a little pedantic pet peeve of mine. You don't you don't have ten spheroids. Hashem has ten spheroids. You have koichais. Now they're the exact same configuration with the exact same names because it is a pattern, a pattern which is established in Hashem and is repeated and imprinted within us. Whatever, but just technically, spherois are when we're talking about Hashem, koiches are when we're talking about our own spiritual makeup. Okay, so how many spherois slash koiches are there? I already said it, so ten. you were listening. What? Ten. Ten. There are ten. Why ten? I don't know. That's the number that Hashem wanted. He wanted ten. He likes the number ten. He likes the number ten. <laughs> now, if we're going to get more specific, a little bit more specific, we can divide the ten into two categories. What are the two categories? Intellectual and emotional. How many intellectual, how many emotional? Three intellectual, three intellectual and seven emotional. Excellent, great. <coughs> Why three intellectual? Those are the parents. What? Why three parents? Okay. Not really three parents. There's really two parents. His father and his mother. God. And God's the whole thing. It's all God. There's the father. The father's called Chochmah. Chochmah is the initial inspiration, the germ, the tiny little nugget of thought, the flash of intuition. And um, sometimes it's called a nakuda, a point, because it has no dimension, has no breadth and no length. No depth. But it is, after all, the essential point. It's like the actual idea, the core idea in its most um, compact fashion. It's sort of like, you know, genetic code that needs to be unpacked and elaborated upon until that, you know, strain of DNA becomes a child. So that's father that initial concept. 
correspondingly, you could surmise what is mother. Mother is where you take that little point or tiny condensed packet of information and you deposit it and it begins to get expanded upon and take on detail. It's the womb of thought and that's called Bina. That's the mother. And when you have Chochmah and Bina, the initial invention of the idea, and then the elaboration, the exploration of the idea, Chochmah and Bina, together in intimate union, together, they can't just each be in their own side of the room, then you have children. And the children are the emotions. The midas, as they're called, the emotions, are the children of intellect. Which is an incredibly important point. Again, we're still in the instructional parts of Tanya, but we're learning stuff, I mean, sorry, informational parts of Tanya, but we're learning stuff in the informational parts of Tanya that are going to be incredibly important in the instructional parts of Tanya. Namely, we just found out, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we just found out where emotions come from. See, we know we have emotions, or at least we know what they feel like. But did we ever sit down and figure out, where do these, where do these come from? What, what makes them? How did, they, how did they get to me? And when we find out that emotions are the children of intellect, what does that empower us to do? Not yet, but later on, it's setting us up for a tool later on is uh, we're going to learn how to select the emotions that we want by selecting the information that we want to process. So, again, major spoiler alert, but we're going to... He doesn't say it here yet, but he's hinting already that if you're going to choose to learn Chassidus instead of Lahavdil to go to the news sites on your phone, and you're going to think a little bit about the Chassidus you learn, Indirectly, you are choosing emotions that are going to be holy emotions and godly emotions and positive emotions. Because emotions come from, they're the children of intellect. So whatever information we're processing, that's going to determine the type of emotions we're experiencing. All right, but, but there's, a, there's a glaring omission so far, and I didn't... I didn't I hinted to it, but I didn't bring it up. I, I said there's three intellectual capacities, and I described two of them, mm -hmm. right? And it's sort of, and I called them parents even, and then, so what's the deal with the third one? Uh, and in fact, I don't know, I'm putting you through suspense because that's the way the Alter Rebbe does it as well in Pergimel. He, he, he mentions Chochmah bin Adasa, the three parents, and he explains that Chochmah is the father, that little point of information, and Bina is the mother, that womb where the point gets developed. And he explains that the emotions are, are, are the children, and then he doesn't tell you what Das is till the very end. Okay, so what's Das? First time we find the word Das in Torah is Va'adam Yoda Eschava, and Adam knew his wife Eve, which doesn't mean he recognized her. Oh, I know who that is, yeah. It means marital union, intimate union. That's what Das is. So, <coughs> so in other words, you have Chochmah and you have Bina as distinct intellectual powers. 
but on their own they do not procreate. There has to be das. They have to unite in intimate union. Then they procreate. So a person can be a great chocham and a great novoin. That means have a lot of chokhmah and have a lot of bina. But if he doesn't have das, he won't have intellectual children. The children of the intellect are the emotions. That's why you can get a good professor who can innovate new ideas. That's chokhmah who can beautifully explain with different metaphors and different stories and different examples the concept. That's Bina. But what is he not doing? He doesn't bring them together in intimate union, which is, in one word, focus. <coughs> By focus, I mean... taking it personally. By focus I mean um, devoting yourself, immersing yourself completely and not being distracted. So you can be very, very smart about the ideas that would give you really great godly emotions, but unless you're taking it seriously and focusing and shunning all distraction, um, then it's not going to create emotions. You're just going to know a lot about the stuff that would give you really powerful emotions. Which is why, you know, I, I, I often <laughs> recommend to students that, you know, coming to a class like this is a great beginning, but it's not really life-changing. It's the potential for it, but it's not really life-changing. What, what's life-changing is when after class you go take a walk around the block by yourself. Or if you have friends who are going to stay on topic and discuss the class, you know, go, go, go out for coffee with your friends who are, but who are not going to start talking about other things. They're going to stay focused. They're going to stay focused and talk about the class. Because otherwise it's just like, you know, you, you come to a class and, you know, you sit there for a year and at the end of the year it's like, yeah, I'm a smart person. I heard a lot of interesting ideas. I know what they are. I could even explain them. I could even explain them to others. But I never really personalized it. I never really internalized it. I never really owned it. Didn't make it me. So then obviously it's all going to be up here and it's never going to get down here. So we got to remember there are three intellectual faculties. Chochma bin Adas. And um, Das is the most elusive one. It's the one, well, it's the one that takes, uh, I think, the most amount of work. And that's what's going to create the emotions. Okay, fine. Now, let, let's talk a little bit more about this idea. Um, one time, I was, well, this is... Maybe about six years ago, seven years ago, I was writing, uh, I was, well, speaking of Das, I was extremely immersed in a project where I was translating parts of Tanya. Not this part of Tanya, another part of Tanya. Um, and actually the project was way long past due. And, um, and I had been paid for it, I had to finish it. So my wife sent me on a writer's retreat. My son was going to a winter camp in Arizona, 
She said, go with him, it's 10 days, and don't come back till you finish. <laughs> so, but it worked. I went there for 10 days, and in 10 days I wrote more than I would write in six months at home. Wow. And that's Das, just totally okay. immersed, right? And, but the thing was, it was a winter camp, so the counselors there said, why don't you talk to the kids, talk to the boys? I said, I really can't, because first of all, just in general, I'm not a kid guy. I'm not like, you know, <laughs> that's not my thing. And then on top of it, I'm like immersed right now in something. And then on top of that, I'm immersed in Shariyich and Ve'amunah in really deep, it's about, it's about the mechanics of ongoing creation. It's like very deep stuff, cosmology, the origins of the universe. I said, it's really, I can't break out of that and just, you know, do... Uh, you know, camp counselor mode. So they said, no, it's fine. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> they were, I guess they were that desperate. So um, they filled the room with these kids, and uh, about 60 kids. And these are all, uh, I mean, it's all Schluchen's kids, and most of them are from far-flung areas. I'm mentioning that right now. You'll see why later. Um, so I get up there and I say to them, so the, the first line of Shari Yechavamun, which is the second volume of Tanya, maybe after we finish this for a year, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll learn the second volume of Tanya too. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I'm thinking the first line there is, You should know today and place it to your heart, that the Lord is God, there is none else, there's nothing else, there's nothing but God. Um, and what does it mean you should know today and place it to your heart? You should know today's cognitive, place it to your heart is, is emotional. You can't just stay up here, you got to put it, got to get it down here. So that's what I wanted to talk about because that's what I was immersed in. So I got up there and I asked them, um, excuse me, everybody, tell me, where, no, 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 in fact, I changed, I changed it, I didn't ask them the question, I said, if your four-year-old brother or sister came to you and asked you, where is Hashem? What would you tell your four-year-old brother or sister? That's how I asked it. And what did they answer? Everywhere. everywhere. Absolutely. They answered everywhere. I told them, that's right. You are all right. You all know the right answer. Congratulations. Now this is the part that doesn't always happen in education, unfortunately. I said, you own, because usually in education we make sure they know the right answer and now you're done. You're done, that's it. What more is there, right? What more could there be? But that's not being done, that's, that's being started. You're just getting started. You went to the class, right, but did you go out for a walk afterwards and say it back to yourself in your own words and, and, and realize how it affects you as a wife, as a mother, as, 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 a, as a Jew? No. So I, I asked them, I said, you all know the correct answer. That's beautiful. Hashem is everywhere. How does that make you feel? No. They didn't know. They didn't know how it made them feel. So I said to them, you know how sometimes when you, your family comes to Crown Heights, so I told you these were like Shulkin's kids, so I said, you know sometimes your parents take your whole family to Crown Heights, and let's say it's Saturday nights after Shabbos, 
and you're gonna order some food from a restaurant, which is a special treat for a kid who <coughs> might live in a place where there's no kosher restaurants. And maybe your big sister grabs the phone and she's sort of like uh, taking a poll. You know, she's like getting everyone's vote because you can have either fleshics or milchics. So the choice fleshics or milchics means pizza or, uh, you know, fake Chinese. Those are the two options. Pizza or Chinese. Or let's at least pretend for this story. So your big sister with the phone, it's like, pizza or Chinese, pizza or Chinese, pizza or Chinese. And everybody's got to say, pizza, I want pizza. No, I want Chinese. Okay. Pizza wins. All right. And they come to you and they say to you, pizza or Chinese? And you say, uh, give me a minute. All right. Now let me, let me, let me stop this for a second. Give me a minute. What do you need a minute for? I just asked you what you want. What do you like? You need a minute to figure out what you like? You're that out of touch with your own feelings? I didn't ask you what I like. I asked you what you like. Tell me what you like. You don't know what you like? No, no, give me a minute. And why are you going to know in a minute? So I told them. I said, you don't use the minute to figure out what you like. You don't need a minute to figure out what you like. If you like it, you know it. You don't need to figure it out. You're not using the minute to figure out what you like. You're using the minute in order to like. You know what pizza is. You've known about it since you were a little kid. The word has meaning to you. You know what Chinese food is. That word also has meaning to you. But it's purely cognitive right now. I say the word and it makes you think of an idea. You're not feeling anything. So to get it from here to there requires an extra process, requires time. And that's why you say, give me a minute. Give me a minute. And then for a minute, what do you do? You take 30 seconds and you meditate on pizza. You take 30 seconds, you meditate on Chinese food. And at the end of your minute of meditation, then you say, hmm, I feel like pizza. I feel like pizza. So you knew about pizza before the minute, but you didn't feel like pizza until after the minute. There are things that we know about, but we don't have any particular feeling about them, but if we were to focus on them, we would automatically encounter a feeling. Remember um, last Monday there was that talk, you ruined my life, I don't know how many people came to it or not, came to it. So this is a negative example, but the negative examples are the same mechanics. The negative example is the resentment. Which I was, I was talking about over there. Resentment is from the Latin root, uh, the Latin root uh, sentir, which means to feel, like sentiment. So res resentment is a resentiment. So there's a pain in the past that uh, it's just a memory, but then if you actually like, relive it and you focus on it, you put yourself in it, then with that focus, you'll actually refeel it. You'll get the emotional response. And, and it's as reliable as, you know, when mommy and tati have intimate union. Sooner or later, you're going to get children. When you take Chochman Bina and then you focus with Das, you're going to get an emotional reaction. It's inevitable. Whether it's good stuff you're running through or, or not such good stuff you're running through the, your, your mind. I had a teacher who once told us in Yeshiva, he said, if you put wheat grain in the mill, you get out wheat flour. If you put barley grain in the mill, you get barley flour. 
Whatever grain you put in the mill is the type of flour that's going to come out on the other end. <clears throat> Whatever subjects you choose to cogitate upon intellectually, you will produce concomitant emotions. The emotional response will be according to the information you were running. So I asked these kids, how do you feel about the fact that Hashem is everywhere? You know Hashem is everywhere, but you don't have any particular feeling about it. But it's just like pizza, uh, whether you know it's about pizza or Chinese on a Saturday night. <clears throat> you know what those things are, but you don't have any particular feeling. But if you say, give me a minute, give me a minute to actually focus on it, then you develop a feeling, uh, an opinion. An opinion is sort of like um, the bridge between an idea and a feeling. An opinion is not full-fledged emotion, but it's at least it's more personal. It's more subjective. It's like here's how I take it. You know, this is my take. So that's all I'm really asking is, you know, you know that God is everywhere, but I would like to know your opinion on that. Your opinion doesn't mean whether or not you agree that He's everywhere. He is everywhere. What I mean is, like, this is the fact. God is everywhere. How does that affect you? How does it make you feel? Do you have any particular, you know, personal reflections on that? Now, of course they didn't. Because if you haven't done that process, you don't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. But I asked them to give me that minute. The same minute that you would spend to figure out whether or not you're feeling like pizza or you're feeling like Chinese food. Just take a minute to think about Hashem is everywhere and see how it makes you feel. So we did that. We, we, we spent a minute. <clears throat> and um, at the end of the minute, I wanted to get one or two kids to tell me what happened. So I said, okay, could, I do, could anyone tell me what, they, what feelings they, they felt? And so one kid raised his hand. And it happened to be who was sitting in the very front row on the far left side. And I said, yes, how, how do you feel? And he said... I think the first kid said, I felt safe. I said, wow, that's really nice. I said, who, who else could give me an example? So the kid right next to him, meaning front row, left corner, but like one over. I said, how did it make you feel? And he said, made me calm, made me feel calm. I said, wow, that's really nice. And I was done, that was good, it was good. I had two examples, but I, the kids thought, that we were going around and asking everyone, because I did the first kid like this, and then the second kid, so then the third kid, ought to be, I didn't even ask him, the third kid just spoke up, and he says, I felt happy or whatever, and then I realized, it's a point of no return, like everybody's <laughs> doing like this. So I, I stood there for 20 minutes. <clears throat> well, every single one of these kids, I told you, there was like 60 kids, and they all, and so the, as young as eight years old, I think was the youngest, and the oldest were 12, and they all would tell me the feelings that they got from thinking about Hashem is everywhere. Um, and then, so at the end, I had this list of like these amazing emotions, calm and happy and safe. And I was thinking to myself, wow, if we could somehow bottle this and sell this to the pharmaceutical industry, we would be billionaires. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, you can't bottle it. And you don't have to bottle it because every single person, even a little child, has access to it for free. Just no one's going to do it.
the information is out there. Hashem is everywhere. That's all it takes. A little nugget of information like that. Okay, fine, so you're grown up. You don't want to call it Hashem is everywhere because it sounds like the song Hashem is there, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. So you call it uh, omnipresence. There, you have a Latin word for it now. It sounds fancy. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You're too from. You want it to be, you want it to sound Jewish. Okay, so you could say, That's a Kabbalistic term for it. And you're using uh, Aramaic and everything. It sounds very Kabbalistic. All right, fine. You call it whatever you want. The point is, there's this idea. The idea is true whether you think about it or not. But it's going to affect you only if you think about it. And when I, when I say affect you, I mean it's going to create emotions. And by creating emotions, what I mean is, <clears throat> it's going to create, you know, emotions are motivations. It's going to create compelling motivations in your life. A lot of people think of meditation as something you do on the fly, as a reaction, like, oh, this thing, this stimulus is stressing me out, but I'm going to think about God. Well, it's, that's nice. It's always good to think about God, but it's a little late now. What I should have done as a, as, is as a regimen, as a, as a part of my life, maybe even call it morning prayer. You get up every day and you think about God until... Children are born from that intellectual exercise until you get an emotional reaction. And now, as you go about your day, you have new motivations, refreshed motivations, that are God-oriented. And then, when the same stimulus that pushes your buttons comes up, you have a different set of emotional resources for dealing with it. By the way, just as a little addendum to this story, I like this story because, um, I don't know, it just shows you that even a kid can do it. Um, but, as a, but as an addendum to the story, I told this story at a Chabad house on a college campus on the West Coast. A uh, very, let's say, progressive type of atmosphere, um, very skeptical, very um, California. <laughs> College campus. College campus, California, together. Okay. And after I had told this story, a lady comes up to me and she says, I would call it regressive, but no regressive. Recall, okay. <laughs> She says to me, a lady comes up to me after the talk, and she says, I am a professor of psychology here at the university. And I am sorry, I didn't want to ruin your story while you were telling it, but you said there were, you know, little kids there as young as eight years old. And they said uh, that God is everywhere, but developmentally, that's not a concept. <laughs> that an eight-year-old can know. And Piaget, that's how she knows, Piaget said. So I, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to argue? You know, developmentally, it's impossible. It's what, what am I supposed to do? So I told you it was a campus Chabad house. So a lot of campus Chabad houses, the Shluchim live in the Chabad house. So it happened to be that the kids had a special treat that night. 
they were allowed to stay up late and come to the lecture. So there was this little kid standing there in his pajamas, <laughs> a little Ziskite. And I said to him, I said, Yingle, what's your name? And uh, I remember his name was Chaim Maisha. Chaim Maisha. I said, Chaim Maisha, how old are you? He said, seven. I said, perfect. That's great. That's great, Chaim Maisha. Can you help us? We're having, us grown-ups are having a discussion over here. I said, Chaim Maisha, where is, where is Hashem? He says, everywhere. So I said, <laughs> developmentally, you can't, uh, well, he was told to say that. He doesn't know what it means. So I told her, I said, let me, let me tell you this. Let me agree with you. I'm going to agree with you that um, developmentally, such a concept as omnipresence is not a typical seven-year-old or eight-year-old idea. I'm going to agree with you. Um, but here's the thing. We, and by we, I don't mean it in any sense of exclusion. I'm saying as a point of fact, anyone else is welcome to do the same. But I'm saying, we who study this and not, don't just study it, but this is what we, how we think and how we relate to our children, we do talk about abstract concepts like infinity and eternality and omnipresence. And so I will grant to you that the average seven-year-old or eight-year-old doesn't have these concepts because where would they be exposed to them? But my point is that a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or even much younger, we have four-year-olds singing Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. And I don't believe they're just parroting words. That when, you're, when you live with these concepts and you transmit them to your children, yes, children can learn these ideas. Of course they can learn it. Perhaps developmentally they won't on their own, but they can learn these concepts. And in fact, that's the foundation of Jewish education, is that children begin at a very early age to grasp spiritual concepts. People ask me all the time, how old do you have to be to learn Tanya? I said, it depends how you translate it. It depends what words and which examples and which stories you use to bring it out. But I'd say, if you know how to talk, if you know how to say, Mommy, I want juice, then you're old enough to start learning concepts of Tanya. I should tell everybody, you, know, this is a, you heard it here first. I wrote a children's book. It's not out yet, because the illustrations are being worked on as we speak. But I wrote a children's book, which is, it's basically, it's Tanya. And um, I showed it to a bunch of people. And uh, some of them said, Children can't grasp such deep concepts. What's what's the story? I don't want to ruin it for you because I'm sure you all want to get the children's book. <clears throat> but it's a story about a little boy who one morning he's about to get on the school bus and he gets a, a, a great idea. He has just enough time 
before the bus to, to run inside the store and buy his favorite treat, which is a cherry ice, uh, ice pop. And he gets all excited about the ice pot. And he knows it's not time for a treat, but it just seems like such a compelling idea to go inside and buy the ice pop. And he's, there's that excitement for the ice pop. And when he comes outside and he takes off the wrapper and he's about to, to chomp into his ice pop, all of a sudden his ice pop disappears. And he looks, and standing next to him is this big oaf of an ox. And it just <coughs> gobbled up his ice pop. And then the, then the ox smiles at him, and his tongue is hanging out, and his tongue is the ox's tongue is bright red. And he realizes the ox just ate his ice pop. And then the bus pulls up, and the bus driver says to the kid, you can't come on here, you have an ox. <laughs> so he has to walk to school. And then he gets to school, <clears throat> and then the ox is following him. So he takes some cookies from his backpack and he throws them down and the ox starts eating the cookies and the kid runs inside the class and runs inside the school and he runs to his classroom he ditched the ox. And then all of a sudden he realizes the kids are laughing. And he looks behind him and in the window behind him the ox is in the window. And the teacher says, come on, you can't bring your ox to school. You're distracting all the children. They can't learn. And he has to go sit outside. Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> and then at recess, he's playing kickball. It's his favorite sport. And uh, the ox is there again, a kickball. And uh, the ox runs up and he kicks the ball. It flies over the fence and the ball goes into the street where the children are not allowed to go. And now it's game over and nobody can play ball anymore. The ox ruined the game. And so this kid is feeling very terrible about this terrible ox who shows up out of nowhere, follows him around, and is interfering with his life. And that night he's imagining all types of ways to get rid of this ox. How is he going to, you know, in silly ways, you know, like strap him to a, a rocket and blast him out to space. Uh, and then the next morning he's walking to school. Of course he's walking because he's not allowed on the bus anymore. And he sees the bus driver standing in the middle of the street, sort of flabbergasted. <sighs> what am I supposed to do? And he looks, and the bus is just sitting there in the street. It's not driving. The bus driver standing in front of the bus. And he says to the little boy, he says, Come here. I have an idea for you. And he gives the boy a dollar. And the boy goes inside the store with the dollar. And meanwhile, the bus driver is taking some ropes, and he's tying them to the ox. The boy comes out with his favorite treat with the cherry ice pop. And he holds it in front of the ox. And he lures the ox. And the ox is tied to the bus. And the ox pulls the bus. And all the kids get to school because of the ox's strength, the ox's power. That's the story. And then, and then the boy realizes that the ox actually has a lot of good uses and <clears throat> he can help out in a lot of in a lot of different ways. So that's a story. So people are like, nobody's going to understand that this is a metaphor for the <laughs> Nefesh of Bahamas. And I said, they don't need to. I don't want them to. What I want is that a kid should go to sleep with this story every night. And then 10 years later, when he's sitting in yeshiva one day, and, and he's learning Tanya and Nefesh Bahamas and Nefesh Elokis, and how to, Nefesh Bahamas isn't your enemy, he feels like your enemy because he's disruptive, because his, his energy is frenetic and it becomes a distraction, but that if you channel it, if you give him a job, and if you, if you harness his energy, then he becomes a great asset, and the kid's going to say, oh, you know what that's like? It's like that children's book that mommy used to read to me when I was little.
the point is that um, these ideas are, this is not icing on the cake. This is not like, after I have uh, achieved mastery in all of my studies of Judaism, which is a preposterous thought inherently, <laughs> right? Mastery of, once I get my PhD in Judaism, <laughs> then I'm gonna start learning this spiritual stuff, this mystical stuff, this far out stuff. These are the foundational concepts. And, and even children can get them. And more than that, and here's my point, not only even children can get them, but even children can be moved by these ideas. Even children can be moved, can have emotions about these abstract ideas. Not just that you can repeat, you know, like this developmental psychologist says, he doesn't know what it means God is ever, he's just repeating words. But no, he, we know that he does know what it is, and not only he knows what it is, but potentially he could even have very strong feelings about the idea. And the same thing with us, if it's true for a child, it's even more so it's true for us, that we can study these ideas, we can talk about them intelligently, we can know what we're talking about, and not only that, but we can be deeply moved by these ideas. These ideas can become powerful guides in how we deal with our day-to-day -day life. So this is not just about <clears throat> becoming, uh, you know, sophisticated and uh, being able to quote Kabbalistic uh, jargon and seeming, you know, all, you know, all, all fancy. These are ideas that lead to an emotional takeaway. These are ideas that change our motivations in life. So that when we encounter a conflict, when we have a dilemma, we make better choices. Why? Because the motivation to make the right choice is there already, because we care already. Why do we care? Because we've been thinking about the right things. I remember I had a Tanya class, this is a good 15 years ago, in another city, in another state, and um, this was a class with ladies who were all coming from what I would say, um, they had really very, very, very little other Jewish education coming into the class. And as far as level of observance, um, I mean, how do I describe it? They were, uh, it, was a, it was a group of ladies that mostly all went to the same Reform temple. <coughs> and we studied Tanya together for, I think about a year and a half or two years. And it was interesting to watch the progress that people made, but one of the one of the quintessential stories there was about the lady who started lighting Shabbos candles, and not just started lighting Shabbos, Shabbos candles, but started lighting Shabbos candles on time. No, she was inspired during Rosh Hashanah, as I recall. And she started lighting, and 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 I, and I remember saying to her, by the way, you know, it when you started after Rosh Hashanah, candle lighting was at like six thirty, which is nice, <laughs> but it's gonna get earlier and earlier, and then you know, like we set the clocks back Saturday night, it gets crazy, right? So. Um, I said to her, it's going to get harder. I mean, it's going to be, you know, at, the one, at one point, it's going to be like 359. 
at least the city where, where we were. And I remember that first Shabbos when candlelighting was before five o'clock. And she comes in the next, I think the classes were on Mondays, interestingly enough, like this. And she comes in and she's like glowing. She has this report that she says like this. Now, I want you to understand, just so you can understand completely the story, she was not Shemir Shabbos. She still wasn't Shemir Shabbos. She started lighting Shabbos candles and lighting them on time because she understood to light Shabbos candles means you light them on time. After she lit Shabbos candles, it wasn't like she didn't drive or, or, or do other things. She wasn't yet Shemir Shabbos. This was the beginning of her journey. So she comes in and she says... Um, I, I had an incredible experience. Well, th and this is after studying Tanya for a good year or so. And uh, she says, it was 4.55. And I realized that I wrote a check today and it's not covered. And I have another check that's written to me. And I can go to the bank and I can make a deposit, and I can cover that check that I wrote today. Or, I can light Shabbos candles on time, but I can't do both. It's 4.55, the bank is closing. <clears throat> it's a choice, I have a dilemma here. I can get to the bank, I can cover the check, and then it's going to be too late to light, <clears throat> too late to light Shabbos candles on time. Or I'll light Shabbos candles right here and now on time, but I know by the time I get to the bank, it's going to be after five. I missed it. So she says, I thought to myself, my animal soul is feeling fear right now. The fear of insecurity, financial insecurity, fear of being embarrassed. It's embarrassing. I'm going to, it's possible I'm going to have insufficient funds. Fear of disappointing my husband. He's going to look at the bank statement. He's going to think poorly of me, think I'm irresponsible, even though I know it was just an oversight. I'm having a lot of fear right now. My, this is, But this is all animal soul. My animal soul is feeling this threat of loss of security, loss of safety, loss of, of, of dignity. And, 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 and my animal soul is getting pumped up. And she said, I felt myself. I felt that the animal soul is always in survival mode. Everything's life and death. It's all fight or flight. And, and I felt those emotions. You know, I'm aware of those emotions and I know where they come from. At the same time though, at the same time though, my godly soul is saying to me, Shabbos candles, Shabbos candles, you came to this world for this purpose, to add light to the world every Friday afternoon as, as, as a Jewish woman. And, and this is what you were sent here for. And, and, a, and a check gets bounced, and that comes and that goes, but the candle that you light for Shabbos, that's forever. That, that has an effect on the entire world. That's what you're really here for. You bounce a check, you don't bounce a check. That's not who you are, that's just something that happened, that's a blip on the screen. Lighting Shabbos candles, that's your essence, that's what life's all about. And, and she said, and I felt the emotions. In the end, I want to tell you, I made the right decision. I lit the Shabbos candles. I let the check let the check bounce. By the way, I think the happy ending is like a Hollywood story, but I believe when she went and made the <clears throat> deposit on Sunday or Monday whenever she went to the ATM or whatever, I believe the check never bounced in the end. So in the end, it never even bounced. But 
it's not the point. It's not, it's not why it's a great story. Mm -hmm. The reason it's a great story is because you can see, and this is the point I'm trying to get to in chapter 3, emotions are the children of intellect. That when you spend time not just knowing what it says in the holy books, but really internally dialoguing it with yourself, using your own words and your own expressions, and your own imagery and your own metaphors and your own symbols, and that, that, that's, that's, that's the Bina. And then focusing on it. And how do I feel about it? How does this make me feel? What are the repercussions on a personal level? And really relating to it. That's the Das. When that happens, when there is that intimate marital union within the cognitive sector, it is inevitable there will be emotional children. Emotional children will be born. And we will have new sets of motivation to steer us through life. Now again, like I said, that's not what he says in chapter 3 we're going to do with this information, but I'm giving you a heads up that, that that's where it's heading. So now we know, we'll give the one sentence summary. The godly soul is composed of how many faculties or potentials? Ten. Ten. Those ten faculties or potentials can be subdivided into how many general categories? Two. Two. What are the general categories? Intellect and emotion. And what is the relationship? That's probably the most important point of the chapter. What is the relationship or what is the way we describe the relationship between intellect and emotion? Parents and children. Parents and children. There, that's it. That's the chapter. Good? Very good. Okay.